Hello, and welcome to this Cato Institute event on the conflict in Yemen. I'm John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Since the start of the war in 2015, U.S. policy has been to support and even cooperate with the Saudi-led coalition, providing weapons, intelligence, aerial refueling, and diplomatic cover, among other things. In 2019, Congress voted to end U.S. involvement in the conflict, but President Trump um, vetoed that measure. Soon after his election, President Biden announced a halt to U.S. support for offensive Saudi operations in Yemen, uh, and he designated a special envoy, um, although it was never quite clear precisely what this announcement uh, about halting offensive uh, support uh, meant. And since then, Biden has approved new weapons sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And the nature of the administration's policy on this remains somewhat ambiguous uh, and continues to even confuse members of Congress and the president's own party. Um, to, to discuss the state of the conflict, ongoing diplomacy, and U.S. policy in all this, we're joined by three distinguished experts. Thomas Juneau is Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Summer Nasser is the Chief Executive Officer of Yemen Aid, and Doug Bandau is a Senior Fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, to begin with, uh, I want to um, give our panelists time for a quick opening statement to offer their thoughts on the conflict and hear their varied mm -hmm. points of emphasis um, before we head into more of a discussion. We'll start with Thomas and then Summer and then Doug. Thomas, please go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for the uh, invitation. So I'll focus on U.S. choices in Yemen, but much of my, my work in recent years has focused also on the regional aspect, Iran's policy, the UAE's policy. So I'm happy to also discuss that in the uh, discussion after that. So first, a general point on U.S. policy in Yemen historically. Uh, the U.S. does not have and has not had historically much of a Yemen policy. When U.S. interest in Yemen increased after 2001, it had a counterterrorism policy that affected mostly negatively uh, Yemen. Uh, but the point is that when it looked at Yemen, the primary lens was counterterrorism. After 2011, and then especially after 2014-15, uh, the U.S. started looking at Yemen also through the prism of its Iran and Saudi Arabia policies. But again, the dynamic was the same. It didn't really have Yemen as a primary consideration. Uh, so today, with uh, war in Yemen going on for more than six years, with the U.S.'s uh, Saudi partner being caught in a very costly quagmire, uh, and with Saudi Arabia imposing a brutal blockade on Yemen, uh, what I'll try to do in just a few minutes uh, to start is to, to understand what the U.S. is doing and, more importantly, what it might or might not do uh, going ahead. So just a few points on, on American foreign policy to, to frame this. Too often, uh, when you look at American foreign policy, uh, it, it has failed to take into consideration the second and third order effects of its decisions. Um, the image that we use up here in Canada is of the U.S. as an elephant rolling in the grass. Even if the U.S. tries to roll in the grass gently, uh, the grass is going to be damaged. Uh, there is a little way to, to avoid that. Um, so we're in a world where uh, what the U.S. does in Yemen for now is largely a function of its Iran, Saudi, and counterterrorism policies. 
We're also in a world where the U.S. often fails to plan for the law of unintended consequences. And we're also now uh, for a few months in a world where many in the Biden administration and in the Democratic Party are saying, and the starting point is accurate, that the U.S.'s current policy is bad, i.e., as John said in the introduction, supporting Saudi Arabia and the coalition's uh, war effort. Um, therefore, we need to change because things cannot be worse. And this is where I think that even though the starting point is correct, the current policy is not uh, working well. The second part of that rationale is not correct, i.e. it can't be worse. Because yes, it can be worse. If the U.S. makes the wrong decisions mo moving forward, things can be worse for Yemen itself. Um, but also for American interests. And, and the, the very difficult dynamic for the U.S. right now is that things can be worse, but it's very difficult to make things better uh, because Saudi Arabia is caught in a bloody and costly quagmire without a viable exit strategy. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the U.S. has very little, little leverage on the Houthis. So for the U.S. to, to, to balance that deep asymmetry um, uh, uh, in terms of the reality on the ground is extremely difficult. So in the context, uh, there's been a lot of people in the U.S. recently, in recent months, including before the election, that said the first step is for the U.S. to pressure Saudi Arabia to unilaterally lift the blockade on Yemen. And the logic here seems very uh, intuitive. It seems very appealing. The blockade contributes to a humanitarian crisis. Um, it is immoral in, in multiple respects. It's a disaster in many ways. And it's also a very normal reflex that, that we see in American foreign policy, i.e. looking for areas where you have leverage, saying, I don't have leverage on that side of things. I can't do much. I have leverage here. Therefore, I will act on that side. Uh, and the U.S. indeed does have leverage on Saudi Arabia, potentially much more than on the Houthis. But as, as appealing as that would appear, I, I'd argue that counterintuitively, uh, this would be a, a bad policy. One, it's not easy as it sounds. Um, even if the U.S. tried to pressure Saudi Arabia, it's not like Saudi Arabia would just, uh, if the U.S. snapped its fingers, uh, would just lift the blockade. Saudi Arabia would not do that easily. Two, uh, in the short term, even if Saudi Arabia lifted the blockade, uh, that would lead to gains on the humanitarian front. Absolutely. And that's an important point to make. But my point is that the combination of the law of unintended consequences and of the U.S. traditionally looking at Yemen through the prism of its counterterrorism, Saudi and Iran policies would lead to a result that would be different than what is intended uh, behind that uh, proposed policy. One way to illustrate that is to look at what the Houthis did after the Stockholm Agreement in late 2018. So the Stockholm Agreement was meant to stabilize the situation on the western coast of Yemen, uh, but it didn't really do that. Basically, what it allowed the Houthis to do was to pocket those gains and concentrate their troops on other fronts. So they used that agreement not as a confidence-building measure towards a peace process, but as a way to strengthen themselves. And given who the Houthis are, how they think, what they've been doing, in addition to the fact that they are even stronger today than they were three years ago at the time of Stockholm, I think there can be no doubt that, that if Saudi Arabia lifted the blockade, the result would be, yes, limited gains on the humanitarian front, but basically the Houthis weaponizing that additional aid that would come in, diverting the fuel uh, to feed its war effort, etc. So, what would the result be? It would strengthen the Houthis, it would weaken Saudi Arabia, uh, and it would make, a, a, in the long term, uh, any peace process more difficult and less likely. Uh, and therefore, in the longer term, not only peace would be more difficult, but so would the humanitarian situation. 
um, because enhancing Houthi power is not the way to, to move forward constructively beyond uh, short-term gains. So to, to finish on this, uh, as much as I see the, the moral impulse to push uh, for the blockade to be lifted as, as appealing and as, as you know, understandable, um, it, it is the result of a lack of understanding of who the Houthis are. They are a brutal movement. They're not a liberation movement as, as they are sometimes uh, made to be. I mean, there was a bit of that initially, but we're, we're way beyond that now. Uh, they are obscurantist, etc. And they also have the upper hand now. Uh, so giving them more assets is not uh, is not sound American policy. And and just to 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 come back to that point, this idea of of pushing Saudi Arabia to lift the blockade is a good example of a morally appealing foreign policy proposal that down the road actually makes things worse. Uh, and that uh, is is a criticism that in this case is hypothetical because it's not something that the U.S. has done, at least not yet. But it's definitely a criticism of American foreign policy more broadly in the Middle East and beyond that I think is completely applicable to actual decisions that the U.S. has made um, over the years. So one criticism that you hear a lot about about this this argument that that I'm that I'm making is that this is morally uh, abysmal because it's holding Yemeni hostage, Yemen, the Yemeni population hostage to benefit the Saudi Arabian war effort. Um, and, and even though I see the logic of that, I also think that it's, it's an inaccurate uh, argument to make. Um, to be clear, you know, I've been very critical of the Saudi war effort. I think it's been a disaster on every front, um, but it is what it is. Uh, you have to deal with the, the, the situation as it is on the ground now, not as you wish it were. Uh, and uh, in that in in that context, um, to, to 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 view things in that way would be counterproductive. So to finish, and maybe we can discuss that in the in the Q and A. Uh, what is the answer? Uh, what is what should the U.S. do? It definitely should push for the blockade to be lifted, but as part of a comprehensive uh, uh, approach to peace, uh, and not as a unilateral uh, gesture from Saudi Arabia. And I'll finish on that. Thanks. Thanks very much, Thomas. Summer, do you want to go ahead? Sure. Uh, thanks so much, um, Thomas. I think you, you brought up some excellent points, and, and this is something that is reflective of, of, of uh, those narratives on the ground. Um, obviously, Yemen is, is a very complicated country. It's, and unfortunately, today we are pretty much receiving the attention uh, for the worst kinds of reasons. Um, uh, it's basically the, the crisis really essentially started in 2014 and, and it was uh, a coup against the state by Houthis. Um, and now after six years of war, we're dealing with uh, two thirds of the country um, in need of humanitarian assistance, a deteriorated and almost non-existent health sector, growing number of IDPs uh, and an increasing uh, trend towards famine. Uh, and really uh, an economic crisis. And evidently, I, I believe, I think based on the work that I do, um, it's really the economic crisis that's truly um, adding fuel to the fire. Um, and uh, obviously due to the stability, instability of uh, the country, the currency rate value inflation among other market value attributions. Uh, as the conflict prolongs 
from 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 my views that civil society continues to play a key role in providing aid and services and other interventions that fits within the realm of short and long term uh, solutions, uh, both for serving Yemenis, but also those who reside in it as well. Um, they also are doing their best to push for calls for certain frameworks within a potential dialogue peace process. Uh, but at the end of the day, however, the humanitarian crisis is truly tied to and the work that we do even on the humanitarian side is truly tied to the political developments on the ground. So whatever its successes and failures are, this ultimately gets impacted um, directly to to those on the on the ground. Um, and so I think I, I think right now with the, the current environment, um, everyone is on board uh, truly with the peace process and trying to find a solution except for Houthis. Um, and they tend to utilize a humanitarian card very well to uh, to kind of gain uh, leverage against uh, against everyone else. And so uh, this is a very big problem. Uh, I would say uh, right now there's obviously increased attacks on Medib, which is a city that uh, homes over 2 million people and has the most IDPs in the country. So we're looking at over a million IDPs. Um, and the attacks on Medib really uh, have ignited effort in finding plausible uh, solutions to the crisis. And since we are talking about America's role, I truly want to commend the U.S. envoy um, to Yemen, Tim Lender King, for doing a great job uh, and being transparent about current developments. Um, I, I do, though, have to note uh, that I don't expect a lot of movement within that diplomatic effort, strategically at least, without some sense of leverage, as Thomas had said previously, um, on those who are against uh, and those who are against the peace process and Houthis or whoever else. Um, without that leverage, you really can't have any group become persuaded in regards to sitting down and talking with these uh, through these big differences. Um, the Yemeni government, I think, especially in 2018 with the Stockholm Agreement, uh, they really um, uh, respected a lot of not respected, but they, they kind of accepted the realities of pressures by the international community uh, to limit direct impact. And so uh, they, you know, tried to go in with the Stockholm Agreement. And unfortunately, Houthi saw this as a sign of weakness. And this also created um, some sense of emboldenment uh, with their efforts and to create more instability. And I think this leverage can, um, you know, what I think is that essentially is that we need some leverage on Houthis. Yes, the focus is on Saudi Arabia, and, and I think Saudi Arabia is exhausted at this rate. Um, this is something that's that we're seeing. Um, and I think now the U.S. has to look at the the Houthis and what they can do. I know that the FTO um, that Trump uh, during his last week of uh, the administration uh, tried to do, um, and obviously it was um, re, uh, it was basically uh, taken down uh, by the Biden administration. But I think um, maybe having specific targeted trans uh, FTO designations on Houthi leadership to feel that constraint so that they can get into the peace process. But I think even leverage shouldn't be about the political process. I think it's also humanitarian access. Um, it's seen as a way for even uh, a more easier route for humanitarians and civil society organizations to do the work that they're doing. Because till today, there are hundreds of violations every month, specifically in areas under Houthi control that we're not really hearing much about. And then lastly, I think um, I'll, add, I'll add that uh, really the United States has a significant role to play. I think they are partially um, partially responsible for the results today because they did for the last 30 years support uh, the previous regime Saleh who 
emboldened the Houthis uh, with the coup, and that's because America also supported the immunity deal uh, given to Saleh by the GCC. And so in this type of sense, yes, we do have a, a role to play in the United States. And uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. Thank you very much, Summer. Doug, go ahead. Yeah, Yemen is, is an extraordinarily complex problem for the United States. And I think as Thomas indicated, it's never been looked at as an issue of Yemen. <laughs> it's always been an adjunct to something else. We've had two administrations that have been complicit uh, in, you know, the destruction, the devastation of uh, Yemen. You know, both the Obama administration, which took the U.S. in, the Trump administration, which continued and in many ways, I think, uh, kind of exacerbated uh, the involvement. Uh, the Saudis thought this was going to be a six-week war. They're six years in. Apparently, Mohammed bin Salman has realized that this is not working out to his benefit. Uh, you know, originally, it seemed to receive support within uh, Saudi Arabia. It's not so clear now that people are happy as they see drones showing up at their airports and whatnot. The, uh, you know, we've had seen kind of terrible atrocities, just an awful uh, you know, status for uh, the, the people of Yemen uh, with a blockade plus airstrikes. We've seen deaths, uh, battle deaths, as well as deaths from famine, malnutrition, cholera, disease, uh, an extraordinary uh, humanitarian disaster. Uh, the U.S., as John indicated, has been complicit in a number of ways. The U.S. provided the airplanes initially, uh, frankly, to both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We serviced those planes. We've uh, provided munitions for those planes, <laughs> uh, refueled them for the first stages of the war, and have provided intelligence, uh, supposedly to help with targeting, uh, which has not been very good. An awful lot of humanitarian targets have been hit you know, throughout the war. And I suspect that uh, Joe Biden feels uh, some special responsibility. He was part of the uh, Obama administration, as well as his top officials, Blinken, uh, Sullivan, and others. And they have looked back, I think, on what their initial decision wrought uh, with some horror and want to get out of it. The, uh, he, uh, he, indeed, the president uh, launched, a, at least a start, a very strong initiative against Saudi Arabia, talked about holding Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia as a pariah. But they did back away from that eventually, where they decided they needed to maintain a relationship there, which is going to have some, in, you know, some limitation, at least on what they do in terms of Yemen. The exactly what their policy is, is unclear. As John indicated, they said they would no longer support offensive operations, but they would support defensive efforts uh, on the part of Saudi Arabia. Now, as long as Saudi Arabia is in the war, it is you know, no surprise that they would be attacked by the Houthis, by Ansar Allah. Uh, and that's where we see drone attacks on airports and other things. So presumably the U.S. effort is to help defeat those, but those are naturally part of the war. That is, you know, the Saudis initially apparently thought that they could wage a war and not uh, you know, face retaliation. And what they found is, especially with the help of Iran, that the Houthis have proved able to bring that war back uh, to Saudi Arabia. And that's been very problematic for the royal regime. I think, you know, as has been indicated, the Houthis are not, you know, good people. This is not, uh, we're not talking about people who are well disposed to the, the well-being of the Yemeni people who care about uh, human rights. Uh, they've had their own set of atrocities. They run, you know, they're very authoritarian in how they run their own uh, their sectors. 
the challenge here, in a sense, is that no one who's involved. I mean, the uh, the UAE has been extraordinarily problematic, promoted and, and supported uh, separatists uh, in the south, uh, imprisoned people. It appears to have taken islands and territory for itself. It has commercial ambitions. So we have multiple players here. The, indeed, uh, it's not clear how one puts Yemen back together you know, after six years of war and the centrifugal forces that we have seen. And, and the problem here is the U.S., I think, it's, is out of its depth in trying to bring peace. Conflict has been a historic part of the modern Yemen. I mean, we go back to 1962 with the Yemen Arab Republic. Uh, I mean, it had its own uh, internal divisions where both the Saudis and the uh, Egyptians fought on opposite sides. Five years later, the Aden Protectorate from Britain uh, became an independent country. We had North and South Yemen. They fought. They uh, united in 1990 under Saleh who's been mentioned. I mean, again, another one of these characters who's no friend of democracy. Uh, the Ansarallah or the Houthis arose in the 2000s against him. He was ousted in 2012 and then joined with the Houthis basically to oust his successor in 2014, 2015, which brought the, the so-called coalition in. I mean, none of these you know, internal battles had much to do with the United States. We paid very little attention to the details. Our focus has been indicated was counterterrorism, where both the Houthis and Saleh were anti-Al-Qaeda, which is kind of all we really cared about at the time. And the question is, why are we in now? Well, it's all about Iran, of all things. The uh, Obama administration wanted to uh, you know, convince the Saudis that uh, we were still behind them and wanted their support for the JCPOA, the Iran deal. Uh, of course, Trump drew us out, but his view was maximum pressure on Iran, and that included everywhere, such as uh, Yemen, where he thought the uh, the Iranians were involved in one way or another. I mean, the, the uh, Houthis have never been proxies uh, in the sense of Hezbollah, that uh, you know, clearly they've, uh, they needed arms, and Iran was very happy to uh, you know, drain the uh, Saudis to, you know, to hurt them, and they have done so. It's been quite embarrassing what's happened to the Saudi military. So the question is what to do now. I think the, the most important thing from an American standpoint is to get out of the war. That is, the U.S. has been involved in a war it should not have been involved in, and its involvement has been you know, destructive in turn, humanitarian sense. So to my mind, the emphasis for the United States is first get out of the war, first stop doing harm. Now, it's certainly advantageous to try to promote peace. I mean, the problem for Tim Lenderling is <laughs> that uh, yeah, the ambassador, has, number one, doesn't seem to have a lot of support with the administration. At recent hearing, he was asked some details. And he said, well, I don't know. You have to ask the Pentagon kind of what's going on. Uh, he really needs to know what's going on. And the second is both uh, leverage on the Saudis and on uh, the Houthis. Leverage on the Saudis is primarily stopping helping them. I mean, that's really the leverage we have. You know, beyond that, it's very hard to imagine if the, you know, we would sanction the uh, the Saudi regime if we wouldn't do it over the Jamal Khashoggi killing or other uh, domestic offenses. We're not going to do it over the Yemenis. So there really is little to do with the, the uh, Saudis except to get out and to tell them they are on their own if they're going to prosecute the war. It's tougher on the Houthis. We've never had a relationship with them. Uh, they they hate us. I think they they may hate the Saudis more than us. They may hate Al Qaeda more than us. Nevertheless, we have no relationship with them. Uh, the problem is the sanctions that were imposed, <laughs> number one, they aren't a terrorist group. They're an offensive, outrageous uh, insurgency. 
you know, they don't like human rights, but that doesn't mean they're terrorists in a normal sense of the word. We use that designation to punish groups we don't like. It really undercuts the whole purpose of the, uh, the program. And they don't have economic ties to the West, the West uh, neither the leadership who we put sanctions on, nor the group. It strikes me the best the potential leverage we have is through Iran. That is, if we are able to uh, get back into the JCPO, bring Iran back in. And then at that point, that's the point to talk about other issues, which should include the issue of Yemen, uh, that this should not be a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. The Saudis want out, which is good. The Iranians would have reason to get out. You know, and that I think is an issue that should be top of the list as we talk to the Iranians, that this is one area where they can make improvements that would cost them very little, that they gain some benefit of, of hitting the Saudis indirectly, but not an awful lot, and that it would gain them credit in the U.S., and the U.S. should be prepared to reduce some sanctions because of that, that we should look at this as an opportunity to push the Iranians to show that they are willing to be more responsible in the region. Their support for the Houthis and withdrawing that should be a major part of that to finally get a little pressure put on the Houthis. It has to come, I think, from some others. And the issue of the other Gulf countries, UAE, are there positive uh, you know, inducements they could also offer for a future in which the Houthis would have political role plus something else that the region could help provide them if they halted their attacks on Marib and joined a serious negotiation to come up with a post-war settlement. And I'll stop there. Thank you to all three of you. There's a lot of good stuff in there, good fodder for, for conversation. Um, I'll ask a few questions now and I've encouraged the panelists to jump in and respond to anything they've heard, uh, whether it's my question or not. Um, quickly to Thomas. Um, can you clarify what is at stake for the warring parties? We've talked about how, how far apart they are in terms of possibly coming to some resolution or uh, engaging in um, constructive negotiations, but what does each belligerent want and uh, why haven't they therefore given up yet? And maybe also if you can bleed into part of uh, what Doug said about the potential for a kind of halt in U.S. support of, of the Saudi-led coalition, will that change their behavior sufficiently to possibly uh, get to something constructively? I know the shift from the Trump administration's posture on Saudi Arabia to the Bidens did seem to incentivize them. There have been direct talks with the Iranians, for example. Uh, so talk about um, what the warring parties actually want and how we might be able to influence them. What's at stake uh, in terms of the warring parties, and then I'd be I'd be keen to hear uh, Summers' answer to that too uh, after this. But the the key thing to to keep in mind is that the Houthis are winning the war. Uh, they have not won the war in the sense that they don't control a hundred percent or not even close to hundred percent of the territory of Yemen, and I don't think that's really feasible uh, for for them to you know take the full country. But they control a good chunk of the territory with a majority of the population. Um, they have the upper hand, they have the momentum. Um, the Hadi government, which is officially the internationally recognized government supported by Saudi Arabia, is weak, it is corrupt, it is fragmented, um, and it holds together uh, in large part because Saudi Arabia supports it. Um, so Saudi Arabia wants, as Summer mentioned in her remarks, uh, and, and as has been widely said, Saudi Arabia wants a, a peace process not out of the goodness of its heart. Saudi Arabia wants a peace process to cut its losses because it is losing this war, which has been an abysmal failure uh, uh, on, on its part. Um, 
And the Houthis know that. And that's the fundamental problem that anybody who wants to make peace in Yemen faces now, whether that's the UN, which is looking for a new envoy now with the announced departure of the current one, the US, which has announced its commitment to, to, to kickstart some kind of peace process. Um, Saudi Arabia wants a peace process to cut its losses. And from the Houthis perspective, uh, they are winning. So they are not in theory completely opposed to a peace process, but any outcome of that peace process from their perspective has to reflect what they largely correctly perceive to be their status as now the dominant political and military force in Yemen. And the problem is that Saudi Arabia is not really willing to recognize that uh, and neither is uh, the US. So yes, the US and Saudi Arabia want to make peace at this point, but the, the, the dynamics are not favorable uh, for them uh, and for peace uh, because the Houthis are, are interested only in the narrowest sense. And as long as uh, any kind of peace effort does not reflect that, uh, the Houthis will reject uh, any peace efforts and they will continue the war because for them, uh, that means that they continue to make gains. Iran will be happy to encourage that because at little cost to itself, it is seeing its rival in Saudi Arabia getting bled. Um, so, you know, I'm not optimistic because uh, because of those dynamics. So I, I, I'd be curious to see what, uh, what Summer uh, has to say at that level, but um, saying that you want peace really is only a, a, a very small first step. Summer, I'm interested yeah. to hear any, any kind of response there. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure, absolutely. So obviously, uh, Yemen is very disfragmented right now. Um, and, and there were errors, a lot of um, issues, even from administrative perspective, that could have been better for both the government, for Saudi Arabia, there was ample of opportunities specifically before 2018. Um, I think while, you know, Houthis for, for the United States are not considered a terrorist group, for Yemenis, they are. They they do the acts just as, as what terrorism is. They destruct, they, they have a sense of ideology that um, focuses on supremacy and divine rule of uh, against everyone else. And so in that sense, yes, for the Yemeni perspective, they are um, within that realm of terrorism. But uh, I think, interestingly, um, the Houthis did thrive on the weakness of state institutions. And again, this is a, this is the fault of uh, the government at this time. Uh, and they're feeling it. They're, and it's not just, it's, I guess the thing is, it's not just Houthis. Now we have other groups that are somewhat aligned to the government, but um, not completely in believing in this, some certain state institutions or representatives of those state institutions. Um, but I think what I'm seeing, if you look on a map, I think you're seeing some sense of federalism in place. Um, you know, certain groups hold certain areas. And while Houthis do, uh, uh, you know, for example, hold areas where there is a good chunk of population, I think right now there is uh, some sense of understanding that if Houthis want the peace process, that they need to understand that no one is above the law in terms of the ideology and that they have to align to state institutions and the constitution. But with Houthis right now is that they're not, they don't believe in that. They don't want to come near that. And so in that, in that situation, how do you kind of bring everyone together? I think Saudi Arabia has a key role to play here. 
especially with fractions that fractions that are anti-Houthi, which is pretty much the majority of everybody else in the in the region. And they need to start uniting those groups, at least when the vacuum, when there is a vacuum or when there's a gap. So when Saudi Arabia does leave, they have a sense of protection to understand that, you know, there's a fine line between another war and stability. Quick follow-up um, with regard to the humanitarian situation. Um, you had mentioned a, a lot of the top line concerns. Um, and then specifically, Thomas had mentioned that there's a problem here of the one of the obvious uh, things, first steps that we could do to relieve some of the humanitarian suffering is lift that blockade. But he made some predictions about how that might not serve the initial purposes that, that drive it. Do you have any comment on how to sort of get around that problem or resolve it? And just in general, what needs to be done for Yemenis to receive relief? Sure. So um, Thomas had a great argument here that the moral consensus is not uh, something long term that's feasible in Yemen. And I think um, there's either a moral approach or a utilitarian approach. I, that's the only two that I see more pragmatic. Um, while the utilitarian approach may cause some damage on the ground, it may have shorter results of, of uh, you know, uh, dis, you know, uh, civil civilian impact. And I think the moral approach is, yeah, we can lift the blockade. But really, I mean, when we're actually working on the ground, we see that uh, areas under Houthi control, for example, um, have massive black markets when it comes to oil and diesel and, you know, all these um, other items that they're claiming that they don't have. And so they're also, Houthis, what they're doing is that they tend to um, use civilians as as a cover-up for, for what they're doing. And uh, I think there, I, I, I would argue that it may not be a complete blockade. I think the term is a bit more stronger than what we're seeing. There is access coming in. It's just that there is no mechanism with INGOs or international community on monitoring those um, those entrances. And what what we're seeing is that obviously there's obvious there's just so many problems in regards to interventions, uh, working on the ground, and this is one of the biggest problems with not just any group it's really the international community they're just focusing on the peace process they're not looking at accountability houthis have an ideology and with ideologies you need policies and governance and um, accountability processes to kind of limit those um spillovers to the society uh, on the government side honestly uh, based on just our work, we have not seen any issues um, specifically in free provinces, both central and south, uh, when it comes to issues. And let me tell you, in the south, we're having issues too. I mean, there's no basic uh, services. That's it, It's not just areas under Houthi control. It's it's everywhere. And so I think, uh, I think next step for America is to also focus on government capacity, seeing what's, you know, what's wrong, what can be filled. I, I guess I'm not trying to say that America has a full 100% obligation. That's not, you know, that's not feasible. But at the end of the day, there needs to be some understanding of, of governance gap. Work with the areas that is already under government control, you know, try to flourish those areas and then, you know, also work on others. Uh, Doug, I, I wonder if you can kind of expand on this point about how to get uh, the, the belligerents that we support, the Saudi-led coalition, to change their behavior and perhaps. So, uh, you know, and, there, and there's this issue of uh, we've been intervening for a long time uh, to the detriment of Yemenis. And to you, that that sort of conjures up this uh, 
uh, HIPAA type thing of first do no harm. At the very least, we should stop our interventions until it looks constructive in some way. Uh, does that make sense to you? Uh, or And did you want to expand on exactly how to get Saudi Arabia to maybe uh, accommodate itself in, in terms of its aims in this war? Well, I think the starting point is to recognize the limitations on U.S. power. I mean, we do sometimes imagine we can solve problems that it strikes me we have no capacity to solve. And if you look around the world today, people have lots of places they want us to intervene. I mean, I, I read about how we should be saving Armenia from Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan has proved to be the stronger power. We should we should intervene. We've just seen what's happened <laughs> with the issue between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, look at Ethiopia and its intervention into Tigray. I mean, all of these places call forth for justice and call forth for some something to redress what's going on. And the question is what? It strikes me, if we, ha if we weren't involved in Yemen at the moment, what would people say that we should get involved or would they recognize this is a regional problem as opposed to an American problem? So the notion, given America's experience, say, trying to build anything constructive in Afghanistan, I'm skeptical that we can build something constructive, even in the south of uh, Yemen. I mean, the Hadi government has been indicated is not you know, a terribly viable government. And the, the uh, you know, UAE has been involved in ways that strike me as not being particularly constructive uh, for any sort of stability or a long-term solution. So the question is, you know, what, what can we do there? I think the challenge here is that uh, first, we shouldn't be supporting a side. I don't see either of these sides as being ones the U.S. should support. So I don't see an argument for the U.S. to be backing Saudi Arabia. The most important, and if I was going to you know, nominate anyone for a terrorist regime, I'd put it on the Saudis. Kidnapping Lebanon's prime minister, supporting jihadist rebels elsewhere, you know, invading Yemen, you know, killing a journal, I mean, turning your consulate into an abattoir and slicing and dicing a journalist. I mean, the problem here is we're dealing with some very ugly parties all around. And I put the Houthis in that. I have no, you know, no fondness for them. You know, so we shouldn't be helping people like this. And the best thing to do with the Saudis is for them to recognize they bear the full price. That is, what they found is that the, the Houthis can shoot back. Now, it's not right for the Houthis to target civilian targets in Saudi Arabia, but the Saudis have no complaint. I mean, they've spent six years bombing you know, civilian targets in Yemen. So it strikes me the first thing here is the U.S. should extricate itself from the military involvement. Then at least it has some level of objectivity or you know, it can at least you know, act as if it has some objectivity. I mean, it's deeply involved here. You know, everything under the Trump administration was an anti, you know, Iran policy, the U.S. has gone full bore on one side. It's very hard to promote a peace process that's serious if you are seen as a participant in the war. Uh, so that strikes me as being the, the starting point. And the second, I think, is that how do we involve the region better? I mean, can the UAE play a better, you know, a more constructive role? Are there things the Kuwaitis, the Omanis can do? Are there incentives that can come from the GCC? That this again, this is primarily a kind of Middle East problem. It strikes me, not an American problem. Now, the U.S. has made Middle East problems far worse uh, through its uh, military involvement over the years. But a starting point here would be: How do we get the other countries involved? How do we come up with some settlement where the Houthis have greater political participation, but are hemmed in? They have to take into account, you know, the interests of others. I mean, things that some are mentioned that clearly 
a total, you know, or at least we presume a, a victory in the north that would be largely Houthi versus, you know, some kind of, you know, patchwork perhaps in the south does not look like a very good solution for the people of Yemen. Well, how do we try to come up with something beyond that? And how do we convince the Houthis that in fact they benefit from some other arrangement? I think that's where it requires other involvement in the region, especially, again, trying to give the Iranians an incentive to play a responsible role. Given you know, U.S. policy, they have no reason not to bleed the Saudis. But I think the recent discussions we've seen between Tehran and Riyadh are very hopeful. That is, if these two can come together and acknowledge a sectarian war between them is not helpful for either, that perhaps Yemen can be part of that process, that you can get both Iran and Saudi Arabia to talk about uh, some kind of a settlement and then bring that to their uh, the parties they have been supporting. A bit of uh, research in the political science literature that says when you have a conflict like this where each side has external support uh, that kind of emboldens them, it tends to prolong the conflict. So is halting support on all sides a, a reasonable step forward before we figure out exactly how to uh, engage in constructive talks and align the interests of the belligerents? Um, I mean, that's a, a, a good theoretical question that political scientists can have fun uh, uh, writing about, but I don't think in the real world it's a, it's a useful question in the sense that uh, I do not see any prospect of Iran stopping its support for the Houthis uh, at this point. Uh, there is simply no incentive to do that. The, from Iran's perspective, the beauty of its, of its intervention in Yemen is that it has been uh, a, a small investment. I mean, I, I don't know how much money Iran invests in Yemen every year, but it might be in the tens of millions, maybe in the low hundreds of millions, uh, but that quickly starts being uh, really the upper limit. Uh, that's not a lot of money, uh, and it's a great return on a small investment. It has allowed Iran to, to, to establish a foothold uh, on the southwestern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, which it did not have until a few years ago. Um, it allows Iran to encircle Saudi Arabia if you add its assets in Iraq to the north, in Syria, in Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories. Uh, soon the Houthis it will have the range to, to reach Israel from Yemen with missiles and drones. It's not clear exactly when, if they already have it, but haven't used it, but at the very least it will be soon. So all that to say, um, Iran will not stop supporting the Houthis. Uh, this is not something that is on the table uh, and it will not be on the table from, from Iran's perspective or from the Houthi perspective. And because that's the reality, um, uh, the others like Saudi Arabia and the UAE will be uh, excessively reluctant, and that's that's an understatement, to cede the whole terrain to, to, to Iran. So any, any viable proposal for a peace process moving forward, and that fits into why I was saying 10 minutes ago that I'm not optimistic, unfortunately, any proposal from the UN's perspective, from the US's perspective, has to factor in what I think is the reality of a, a long-term regional presence in Yemen, which is mostly not a good thing, um, but it's there. So trying to, to act as if it could be removed, I think is at the very least um, uh, not useful and, and probably even counterproductive. A summer, you mentioned uh, Special Envoy Timothy Lenderking. Um, what kinds of things uh, can he do? What what is uh, what options are at his disposal to try to move forward constructively? 
Um, yeah, so Tim has been, I think it's from the Yemeni uh, perspective, I think it's been very refreshing to see um, after six years of, of uh, pretty much stalemate and uh, his recent statement in regards to Ma'rib, he basically said that Ma'rib will not, or some, some language that like that, where uh, Ma'rib will not fall for the foreseeable future. And that's, that's a very good sign that, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what Houthis do, it's not going to happen because what happens is that if Ma'rib is taken over, they do have the upper hand, period. I mean, that's just the end of the, the dialogue there. Um, and so we're, we're the, you know, the, the American government and also the uh, Saudis and even just the, um, the Yemeni government have that say. So that's in the works. I think Tim has limited options, like I said, without that leverage. Um, even when he tried to meet some of the Houthi delegation in Oman, they did not show up to him. Um, and so that just shows you also Oman may not even have that type of power, that, or not power, but that sort of influence um, with Houthis. And it shows you just the, the sense of uh, personality that this type of group uh, has, that it's, it's their say or the highway. And um, I, I really am pessimistic. Without that leverage, without Houthis feeling that pain, um, in regards to some some sense of um, pressure on them that they're not going to comply. Uh, so I don't even, I don't have a good answer for you on that. All I know is that Saudi Arabia, the Yemeni government and the international com community are now ready to move forward for a peace process to sit down and to talk about, like you said, um, and like Thomas said, Iran is not willing to do that. And so now the conversation is, um, what do we do with Iran and, um, and how to kind of move forward with them? Um, Doug, you, uh, if, if, uh, if you're right that we can't actually resolve, we can't do much constructively to resolve such a complex situation, um, do we at least uh, have a responsibility to help provide and secure some humanitarian relief given our past policies? Well, I think we should do as much as we can on the humanitarian side. I mean, the U.S. does bear responsibility for having joined uh, you know, into this conflict and enabled the Saudis, especially to, and the UAE, you know, to do extraordinary harm. I mean, one of the challenges here is the Houthis have not been terribly helpful when it comes to humanitarian aid. And I think as some were mentioned, I mean, it's clear a lot is diverted that ends up on the black market, that uh, you know, this is a problem with them as well. But yes, we should be prepared to do as much as we can on that. I mean, the, the difficulty here is that for the most part, we control only ourselves. We don't control anyone else. We don't even control the Saudis, let alone control the Houthis or the other groups. I mean, again, there's a patchwork of different groups that are involved. The UAE has taken a different stance than, than the Saudis. So it's very, very difficult to bring this to a conclusion. And I do think that to some degree, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly worth recognizing that the Saudis have brought a lot of this on themselves. Now, it's not helpful for the rest of the region, but it's very hard to be sympathetic when they've walked into something that allowed them to be bled to death, that they uh, you know, had extraordinary expectations, quite unrealistic about their own abilities as well, apparently, as the inability of the Houthis uh, to fight back. You know, and this, so it's true to be very tragic for the Yemenis. But I don't think supporting the Saudis is the answer to that. I mean, the, the, if anyone on earth needs to, you know, be brought back to uh, you know, kind of rationality, it's Mohammed bin Salman. And apparently he has, I assume at least that's why 
uh, we've seen meetings between uh, the Saudis and, and the Iranians. And I certainly agree at the moment the Iranians ha you know, have no reason not to, act, no, not to keep this policy going. The question is, can we give them that incentive? I mean, if they get back into the JCPOA, you know, are we prepared to you know, try to negotiate on other issues? We have said we want more negotiations. Well, the question is, what are we prepared to give? Are we prepared to offer them something positive to act in a way, you know, in Yemen? And especially we've had some uh, potential uh, apparent dealings between UAE and uh, Iran that there, there may be something in the works here that we can imagine coming out of this, but it does require something new, I agree. But this again is another problem of US policy. Maximum pressure gave the Iranians no reason to behave on any issue. I mean, instead, they had a good reason to cause as much trouble as possible. And certainly that was the policy in uh, Yemen as well. So if we, as we back away from that, is this something that we can use to advantage in Yemen? I mean, I don't see any other good options. I just don't see where the U.S. gets leverage over the Houthis. Uh, sanctions won't do it. And beyond that, it's not clear to me what one would imagine. It certainly was not going to be a, a U.S. Uh, forces going in. And uh, you know, helping the Saudis has not been helpful. So if that's the situation we're in, what are the alternatives? I don't see a better alternative. And at the end of the day, I do think it's important for the U.S. to stop promoting atrocities. And that, unfortunately, we've had six years of backing the Saudis with some you know, horrendous you know, uh, you know, kind of airstrikes and other things where, frankly, U.S. has to look at itself as having been complicit in that. Uh, Thomas, Doug's making some, I think, realist points on the, the way forward. And you, you have two in this discussion. So if we leave aside for a minute the moral aspect, um, what national interests compel the United States to remain involved in either a constructive or a destructive manner? Uh, in other words, what's in it for U U.S. interests and the American people that we be uh, deeply involved in this conflict that technically doesn't have anything directly to do with us? Well, I think that's a very important question, but I think that where the debate gets a bit fudged sometimes on in answering that question is uh, there's a difference to the answer in the answer to that question in 2015 and today. Um, today, uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, has to live with the reality of uh, Saudi Arabia being stuck in a quagmire uh, and Iran having gained the foothold in Yemen. Um, and, and that was not the case back then in 2015, but it's the case today. So by now, the Houthis, because of the gains they've made in the last six years, in part because of the failed Saudi intervention, the Houthis have, for example, received uh, enough support from Iran and developed it indigenously. That's an important point to make that it's not all uh, from Iran. They can now significantly hinder maritime traffic in the Red Sea. And that's a U.S. interest. Um, that's a problem that was not there six years ago. Uh, it's there now. Uh, so that's why when, when I hear uh, the argument, the U.S. should do no harm and therefore extricate itself, these are not the same thing. Uh, in 2015, they might have been the same thing. Not anymore. Uh, by extricating itself from uh, the war in Yemen today, which is an idea that floats around a lot in the U.S. now, the U.S. actually does harm. Uh, that's a tragic reality, but that is the reality. So um, there is no obvious 
good answer to that. I don't have any magic solution that the U.S. on, on a realist logic could promote their interests and, and genuinely help the situation in Yemen. Um, but I do think that the realist argument, first do no harm, therefore don't get involved, was true six years ago. It's, it's not true anymore today. Uh, extricating yourself would do harm to the situation. Summer, uh, I'm going to take a, a question from uh, the audience here, which I'll get back to later. But uh, Philip uh, or Philippe Capet, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, asks, there seems to be a consensus that lifting the blockade would strengthen the Houthi bargaining position. Is it possible that this would help bring about a peace agreement with the Gulf states? And would this be a good outcome? In other words, might result might the resulting impunity for Houthi leaders be worth the benefit? Yeah, so um, there are two arguments to this. There, the first is, well, maybe we should limit aid, which I believe this year um, it's around 30% of funding uh, for UN agencies. And there's a reason to that. Countries are really getting tired of this conflict. There's no uh, solution ahead or there's no signs of solutions. And so one argument would be that some of these countries find that humanitarian aid can be some sense of leverage uh, to the Houthis to actually sit down uh, on the table. Um, and so that's one view. The second view is that no, you know, we should always continue to send over aid. Um, but there, there, the reality is that there's there has been um, tremendous acts of uh, political um, use of aid in Houthi territory. U.S. aid stopped its programs at one point uh, under Trump administration because of that issue. And so I think if, if it's not a military solution, then there has to be the opposite of that, the moral consensus that, hey, we are going to have to probably, if you want oil or you know diesel, whatever issues that you have, and we send it over to the Hadeza port, that means you have to come in and sit with us. And the government just yesterday, the prime minister, um, sorry, the foreign minister, Dr. Ahmed bin Mubarak, um, uh, gave um, some, uh, let in a lot of a few shipments to to Hadeda port. Saudi did the same thing last month as well, to, to, as a sign of gesture to say, hey, let's let's have a conversation, but. Um, unfortunately, it's it's not working. Um, Doug, um, sorry, lost my my train of thought there. Did you have anything to respond to there, or, or maybe you could speak to that actual question? Uh, is is it is it possibly worth the benefit to the Houthis if uh, the conflict can calm down? Well, the Houthis want to win. Uh, they're clearly prosecuting the conflict now because if they do take over Marib, they dominate the north. Marib is an extraordinarily important city in terms of energy and other the population. If they win there, uh, it gives them, at least in the north, essentially victory. So it positions them very well for any sort of discussions to come. Like the challenge is that when you're winning, you want to continue. Uh, and this is not unique to Yemen. I mean, look at conflicts around the world where you try to you know, get some kind of a peace process going. You know, victors want to take advantage of their position. And we've seen this even in conflicts like World War I with horrendous carnage. But people say we can't negotiate until we have a victory. We have to be in a better, better position. I don't see any easy way to get the, the Yemenis out of that. I mean, they have been winning. And, and this is an extraordinary thing. You know, when you figure they're up against the Saudis who've spent tens of billions of dollars on high-tech uh, you know, munitions and are backed by the superpower, you know, to have the Houthis essentially winning in this case is extraordinary. Uh, but again, 
how do you stop them from winning? I mean, as long as they're winning, how do you turn the calculus around where there is no obvious leverage? I mean, I'm not aware of what leverage the U.S. can come into other than military action, and that isn't going to happen. And I, and I think Thomas is right that you know, if you stop doing something, uh, it may result in harm. The U.S. has had that debate over Afghanistan. After 20 years, should the U.S. leave? Well, by leaving, things in Afghanistan probably will get worse. On the other hand, should the U.S. stay 40 years or 100 years to stop that? And at some point, the answer is no. The Houthi control or possible ability to disrupt traffic in the Red Sea is is enough of a concern for direct U.S. interests that it compels us to be involved? I don't think it compels us to be involved at this stage. It's something to certainly look at, but we're not the only parties who care about Gulf traffic. I mean, the other, you know, the, the, you know, the, the oil producers have a very real interest in that. And actually, even Iran would have an interest in that if it was allowed to sell oil. So this is something where I think that Thomas is right, that if, you know, as this goes on, we're going to have to look and see the potential dangers. I mean, what, what is the threat to Israel? Well, my guess is Israel would be one you know, to respond that one, you know, we need to be aware of that. And I don't think the Houthis are entirely stupid. That is, if they have a chance to win and dominate the territory they control, do they want to bring Israel in by attacking Israel? Do they want the U.S. to show up and start making drone strikes on, on their leadership, this kind of a thing? So this is one reason why it is important that we have some kind of a dialogue, I think, with the Houthis, that uh, you know, we're not, we will be watching our interests, and they can be certain that other countries like Israel will be as well, you know, that that should be part of this, that I think that, that will be taken into account. We need to be wary of that, but it's not a reason to stick around today. Summer, if the United States were to approach the Houthis and uh, want to directly talk with them, what would the Houthis be looking for? What kinds of things would uh, the United States have to bring to the table? Um, the first is obviously just as with any other group or country or government, um, they are always talking about opening up the airport of Sana'a. Um, they're looking at Hudayda port, full access, no sense of mechanism in place. And that's the Stockholm Agreement. I mean, the reality is that there was a, there was a point um, for opening up Sana'a airport, but they did not want any sense of security checks. They wanted open, free, um, you know, air traffic uh, coming into to Sana'a Airport and leaving as well. And that's that's obviously not going to happen. Um, you're dealing with a group that are uh, non-state actors, and you never know what uh, what's been coming in. And even there was a time where there were uh, planes coming in from Iran to Sana'a, and uh, there were reports of of um, issues of regarding uh, some sense of uh, weapons, whether it's guns, whether and and not even just at the airport. I mean, uh, the U.S. just found a very large shipment of. Uh, arms. Uh, and what, what's so brilliant about Iran is that they, they don't supply Houthis with such large, fascinating, you know, sophisticated weaponry. They they give them the little things and then that little those little things end up uh, becoming bigger issues. Um, but I I think the humanitarian would be one. Um, but the reality is, is that Houthis do utilize that to their to their benefit. Uh, but just to for Doug's point, I think 
uh, Houthis, you know, if I was a Houthi, I, I wouldn't obviously let go of anything either. I mean, th these were these are tremendous gains that they've never even wished, they never even thought or imagined they would actually um, have today. Uh, but at the end of the day, Houthis are not people um, who follow state institutions. This is a militia group, and uh, they know nothing except for war, and they thrive in conflict. So the end of conflict means that they become weaker. Um, and so this is something that, that needs to be obviously addressed. Um, and, and one of the hardest, I think, plays when it comes to Yemen's conflict, that at the end of the day, when Saudi is out, when America's out, and whenever that happens, it really comes back down to a Yemeni problem. Thomas, uh, along those lines, um, what about the internal political dynamics in Yemen? I mean, the Houthis are obviously dominant, and it's difficult for politics in the ordinary sense to uh, make any kind of progress or have constructive developments under a, a crushing war like this. But um, are there alternatives in Yemen to the dominance of the Houthis? Are, are, are there other folks offering plans and uh, political platforms? Uh, that's a that's a good question, and I think to to try to to uh, connect your question to the theme, which is you know uh, of the event today on America's role in Yemen, uh, and thinking about what leverage uh, does the U.S. have, what could the U.S. do concretely to try to allow it to push its interests uh, better, and at the same time to try to help stabilize the situation in Yemen, and I think that comes back to a point I only started mentioning a few minutes ago, which is the role of President Hadi. Uh, President Hadi uh, succeeded uh, Saleh in, in, in late 2011, early 2012. He was selected as part of an election uh, in which he was the only candidate uh, after you know, all the, the turmoil of 2011 that led to the departure of former President Saleh. Hadi is a lowest common denominator that uh, main factions that support his government agree to support, they agree to support him because he doesn't threaten their position. Uh, he is not a strong leader. He is deeply corrupt. He is not especially competent. If anything, he was chosen as vice president in the 1990s by Saleh, in part because he would not threaten um, Saleh himself, right? I mean, that's dictatorship 101. Do not choose a strong number two who could eventually threaten your own position. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he was there. There were others, but that was a key one. Um, so today, I don't see how two things can happen uh, that we would want to happen with as long as Hadi's in power. A, the internationally, in, the internationally recognized government cannot uh, regain some sort of momentum as long as he's at the leadership because he is too weak a leader. Uh, he is not strong enough. There are also rumors that he's not in good health. That doesn't help. He spends most of his time in luxury hotels in Riyadh. He's disconnected. He's surrounded by a small clique of, of yes men who are themselves deeply corrupt, including members of his family, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, Hadi arguably knows uh, that if ever there is some kind of post-war settlement that approaches, there's no serious role for him uh, in a post-war Yemen. Uh, he would eventually get marginalized and not only would his political life, but arguably his physical life would also be in danger and also his economic well-being because he and members of his family are seriously enriching themselves um, as, as war profiteers. Um, so for all of these reasons combined, Hadi is an obstacle uh, to the U.S. pursuing its interests in Yemen and to peace in Yemen. Um, 
The problem is that there it's very difficult to make him move. A, he himself will not go down without kicking and screaming, uh, and that is not easy. Uh, but also the, the multiple members of the coalition, the, the very loose and fragmented coalition that supports the internationally recognized Yemeni government, it's not clear to me that there is any kind of remote prospect in the shorter midterm of them agreeing to a new leader, to a new president. Not only would it let, you know, from a legislative and procedural perspective, it would be extremely complicated, but politically, uh, that would be an insanely difficult uh, negotiation process. But it's probably something that has to happen um, because I, again, do not see how things can really get better as long as he is president. And um, so from the U.S. perspective, obviously in talks with Saudi Arabia, which has no love for, for Hadi, um, possibly with the UAE, which has a very dysfunctional relationship with Hadi. They do not like each other at all. Um, that probably should be on the table at some point. It would be a very disagreeable moment and topic to broach. Um, but I, I don't think there is an alternative if things are to get better. Doug, part of the reason the United States has been so supportive of Saudi Arabia in this conflict is because there's a belief that Saudi Arabia is incredibly important to U.S. interests and that our relationship with them needs to be maintained in order to secure this, that, or the other thing. Um, can you speak to that? What What is the nature of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? How does that redound to the U.S. benefit in terms of the national interest? Well, much of the, the benefit is uh, economic and energy, which has little to do with government. That is, the Saudis want to sell their oil, <clears throat> they will sell it on the international marketplace, whatever the relationship is between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi Arabia's uh, you know, importance is overplayed these days. It, its energy role is less. The U.S. has uh, done much better in terms of domestic production. And while it's an international marketplace, there are other sources of supply as well. So uh, you know, Saudi Arabia no longer matters nearly that much. Uh, the U.S. has always, you know, the Middle East has always uh, you know, been a concern of the U.S. because of Israel. But, I mean, Israel is essentially a regional superpower and has forged this new relationship with a number of the Gulf countries and at least an informal one with the Saudis, if not an official one. I don't see any reason any of these, uh, you know, would change whatever U.S. policy is. I don't think there's any reason for the U.S. to, you know, treat uh, Saudi Arabia as an enemy. What the U.S. should do is no longer essentially allow Riyadh to set policy in Washington. I mean, the Trump administration apparently convinced that, uh, you know, arms sales provided massive numbers of jobs and uh, you know, for other reasons you know, that no one could quite understand, it really did go far overboard in embracing Saudi Arabia. I think that the U.S. should put some distance there, especially because of human rights issues. I mean, on almost any rating, Saudi Arabia is actually worse than Iran. You go to the Freedom House rating. You know, as I remember, Saudi Arabia came in, you know, like the bottom 10 out of more than 200 countries and territories rated. So that, at the very least, should cause the U.S. to step back. I do think there's some hope. Mohammed bin Salman has you know, released some prisoners after Joe Biden was elected. I think he's sensitive to the criticisms and the fact that he's moved to engage uh, the Iranians after saying that the, the Supreme Leader was worse than Adolf Hitler suggests that uh, he is himself somewhat of a realist. So my view is the U.S. should continue that policy, that there's no reason to go overboard and we shouldn't feel a great need to continue support for Saudi Arabia in this war after six years of doing so. Whatever obligation we have to them in that regard has been finished. And it makes, uh, I think, sense from an American interest standpoint to back away. 
There's a question, an anonymous one from the chat. Um, we've addressed this. Doug has spoken mostly to it. I believe uh, Thomas might be skeptical, but still uh, maybe an explicit answer on this from any of the panelists. Um, would a new JCPOA or a return to the old one create enough leverage with Iran to pressure them uh, to get with the Houthis to get to the negotiating table and do something constructive? Uh, Thomas, you've indicated you think Iran is essentially unmovable on this. Yes. So uh, I, to be clear, I thought withdrawing from the JCPOA was a big mistake on the part of the Trump administration. And I, I largely endorse efforts by the Biden administration to try to uh, rejoin the JCPOA and recreate some kind of deal. We'll see what exact format it takes. Uh, so that that in my mind is clear. The U.S. has an interest in in, in formalizing the capping of Iran's nuclear program. Um, and and that, that I think is clear. My hope, and I have to be clear that the word here is hope, was in 2015 that beyond the JCPOA, the US and Iran and other regional players could build on, on the JCPOA to try to achieve some other gains on the regional front. Um, but I was never optimistic that it was going to happen. For me, that was not a fatal uh, criticism of the JCPOA because the capping of the nuclear deal itself was uh, sufficient uh, as a standalone gain, and I was fine with that. I think uh, today, uh, if anything, that hope is even uh, smaller than it was in 2015, simply because Iran has entrenched uh, its position in Iraq and Syria and Yemen in particular, whereas in Lebanon and the Palestinian territories, it, it is more or less the same as it was in 2015, but it is far bigger in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen in particular. Um, I personally do not think that Iran is interested uh, in, in doing much beyond a nuclear deal. Iran wants sanction relief, and it is willing to, to concede on some aspects of its nuclear program in exchange for that. It is actually close to a vital interest for Iran to achieve that because the sanctions are so damaging. But at the same time, Iran perceives its presence in Yemen, in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, the Palestinian territories as a vital interest. And it will not be willing to offer more than token concessions uh, on that. So. Uh, yes, I support a new JCPOA. I think it is in the U.S. interest. Um, but beyond that, um, by all means, let's try. But I would not hold out much hope. Summer, this is another uh, question from the chat from the audience, again, anonymous. Uh, let's say the Houthis did come to a victory. Let's say the Saudis somehow stop their offensives and the Houthis uh, gain control. What would a, a Houthi government in Yemen look like? Um, uh, just in reality, disastrous. I mean, it's obviously uh, not going to be as 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 all the panelists discussed here that this is a group that does not adhere to um, government procedures. They, they they actually don't believe in the state as as a state. I mean, they they have an ideology that this is a, a sovereignty. Um, uh, a right, a divine right to rule uh, Yemen again. And, and and it's not even just this, they actually want to go back and take over the areas that they lost. Um, and so it's it's going to be another, uh, basically another civil war. And I, I can tell you all factions at this rate, if, if that were to happen, would fight uh, the Houthis again. It's right now, everybody has their own uh, little agenda, but at the end of the day, they're all anti-Houthi. So that's something that unites them all. I think, um, it will be just a complete disastrous uh, situation for Yemen, for the United States, for maritime security. I mean, just the whole region, I think. 
you indicated before, I mean, they're essentially a militia group and don't have experience in governance. And so you, you don't even think that that would be workable, I see. Um, you know, I, in general, uh, the United States has been bogged down in the Middle East under the presumption that it's uh, of great strategic importance. And, you know, we have a lot of other concerns in the world uh, that we need to devote resources and attention to. Um, on the one hand, remaining focused and bogged down like this in, in this kind of conflict in, in ways that are not constructive, as I think the panelists all agree, um, that takes resources and, and distracts us from potentially more important things. But our involvement thus far has also kind of damaged our reputation and it's kind of undercut America's ability to, say, criticize China on human rights in this, that or the other area. Um, so it seems to me direct involvement has, has undermined American interests in addition to causing a humanitarian catastrophe. Does anyone want to speak to that? Well, I think that if you look at U.S. policy, certainly over the last 20 years, it's very hard to see anything constructive. <laughs> I mean, I think Iraq has been a catastrophe, the invasion of Iraq. I mean, you know, it's hard to know uh, what the total casualty figures are, but one good estimate is at least 400,000 Iraqis dead in the, the following sectarian you know, conflict. Uh, we saw the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq that turned into ISIS, which you know, kind of swept not only in Iraq, but also in the Saudi Arabia. One reason Iran is more powerful is because we took out Saddam Hussein. So suddenly uh, the, the Shia majority in Iraq was loosed. I mean, I think there are there are tensions there. And indeed, I'm not con as convinced as Thomas that Iran is in a stronger position. Uh, today in Iraq, a, a lot of undercurrent, I think, of, of younger Iraqis and, and concerns the current prime minister, though limited in his abilities, I think would like to try to rein in some of those militias. That to some degree, you discover how much you dislike the sectarians when they're in charge. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, the, I think what came out of Iraq was well, the impact on religious minorities, etc. But you look at Libya, 10 years on that, uh, we still see uh, you know, bits of a civil war there where they're trying to put uh, the, the system back together in some way. You know, as Thomas pointed out, I think we are worse today in Yemen than we were in 2015. That uh, so U.S. involvement in all of these cases, I think, has been disastrous, both from a humanitarian standpoint, which the Chinese have pointed out, that uh, I mean, all of the human rights violations there, which are very serious. Nevertheless, uh, at least since the uh, Cultural Revolution, which occurred over a number of years, uh, they have done nothing that would match the the carnage to come out of the invasion of Iraq. So it does make it easier. And I hear that criticism when I write about human rights with China. Is it, well, how about? And then there's a listing of the U.S. So I think it is one reason to be skeptical that there's a lot positive we can do in Yemen. I, you know, I'd, I would love to have a positive agenda there. I think it's hard to figure out what that is. And my main hope when I mention Iran is that uh, you know, there was, there's there been pressure in the U.S. for additional negotiations on additional issues. The U.S. would have to make concessions. It's not clear that that's what Americans were thinking of. And I think the big problem now is we are very likely to see the next government of uh, Iran, you know, along with the legislature being much more uh, hard line, which is likely to make agreement on anything you know, much harder. Nevertheless, the Supreme Leader there might see some advantage, again, depending on what was offered to him and if there, we see movement on the part of the GCC countries that also have something to offer Iran. Thomas, did you want to speak to this? 
Uh, you know, philosophically, I am in agreement with much of what Doug just said in terms of the criticism of uh, uh, the, the legacy of U.S. intervention in the Middle East, in terms of the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, I, I like to think about, as a former bureaucrat, I like to think about foreign policy in large part as an issue of bandwidth. Uh, and the Middle East occupies too much bandwidth in, in the limited uh, agenda that the U.S., you know, as a government, as a state, is willing to invest uh in foreign policy generally, and that it has interests in Asia in particular that it neglects. So on that issue, I think I'm, I'm you know, philosophically in, in agreement with, uh, with Doug. Um, and that's why I think if Doug and I had had this conversation in 2015, uh, we would have come to an, to an agreement on, on what would be, uh, well, maybe an agreement uh, on what the US uh, should have done. Um, but by now, uh, by 2021, given the reality on the ground in Yemen, given the reality that the Saudi Arabia is losing, that the Houthis have the upper hand, and that does have consequences, not just for Yemenis, not just from a, a, a moral perspective, which which I'm not dismissing, but I'm willing to, to put aside for now, um, from a U.S. interest perspective, speaking as someone who generally identifies as a realist in, in foreign policy, um, to, to, to back away at this point, uh, to, to extricate itself from Yemen, uh, where the U.S. is only indirectly involved, right? I mean, the U.S., as was said, is has a role to play, or plays a role, but is not itself bogged down in Yemen. Um, that has a cost to the U.S. It makes the situation worse for Yemen, for Yemenis, as Summer uh, very uh, clearly said, but I think also for, for U.S. interests. So, uh, does that mean continue current uh, failed uh, policies that are not working? Ideally, no, because the status quo is not advantageous. But uh, I do think uh, that from a realist perspective, not from a neocon or liberal internationalist or interventionist perspective, from a realist perspective, for the U.S. to simply walk away from Yemen is not in its interest. Um, there are things that the U.S. can do that would be worse. Uh, what can it do to make things better from, again, from a realist perspective? Uh, it's hard. Um, but A, the what I mentioned on President Hadi, uh, I think that's one element, trying to get a new U.N. Security Council resolution because the current framework for the peace process is is dysfunctional and not not. Um, not workable, uh, and, and perhaps other steps, but definitely it, it would not, in the best of cases, be easy. So when, when Doug refers to, I don't think the U.S. can make a positive difference, or, or I may not have the exact words you, you mentioned, um, I think you're right. Um, but uh, the counter-argument to that is uh, true, but it can make an even more negative difference if it's not careful. Um, if, I, if I can add, please, John. Um, so the United States obviously has 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 had bad track records in regards to Yemen. Um, like I said previously in my intro remarks, there's also the issue that it kind of focused on that narrowed policy, which is counterterrorism, which is a whole nother session, honestly. Um, and it supported Saleh, it supported their regime dictatorship. I mean, we're we're talking about the whole nine yards, but. Uh, the Houthis, regardless of their propaganda, they would still, I would assume, they would still like to communicate with the United States. I also believe that despite the um, issues right now, while they're indirectly supporting uh, Saudi coalition, there is a lot of respect to the United States between all political parties, all um, 
groups, uh, even the Houthis in terms of uh, communication. So I don't think, and I would agree with Thomas, that I don't suggest leaving, you know, the United States leaving the country at this time. I think the one thing, or pretty much the two things that I really, uh, and I think even Yemenis believe in, at least for a good chunk of them, is that they focus on two things obviously uniting, there's a lot of disfragmented groups, so uniting those efforts, uniting those groups together, um, they all have the same goal at the end of the day, they're all anti-Houthi, they want to make sure that there's stability in their provinces, but also the National Dialogue Conference. This is an important piece of framework that still gets sidelined, unfortunately, today. While it needs to be amended um, in terms of the federalist approach, um, I think, it, you know, Overall, there is a framework there. The Houthis did accept it, and then at one point just um, flipped on uh, on that conference. But the National Dialogue Conference, Tim Lenderkin can also play a huge part on on um, allowing all groups, including the Houthis, to to abide by it as well. We have just a few minutes left. I thought I'd just offer uh, each panelist some space to give final comments and um, uh, hit your points one final time. Doug, why don't you go first? And uh, then we'll go Thomas and we'll end with Summer. I'd certainly like to see the U.S. try to play the role of a peacemaker. I think that Ambassador Linder King you know, deserves all of our support. And I'd like to see the administration you know, give him more support that uh, you know, he should play a leading role. And I'd love to see the U.S. try to establish a dialogue with the Houthis. My view is that we should stop being a war maker. That is, we should stop su military support for the Saudis. Uh, we are much more likely to have credibility uh, you know, playing peacemaker for not essentially a party you know, to the conflict. The U.S. has long had that problem in the region, and we've had that problem in terms of Israel-Palestinians. The U.S. is an ally of Israel. It's hard to claim that you're, uh, you know, kind of co-equally promoting a peace process there. We've had that you know, problem elsewhere uh, where we're a participant. And I think we need to look then beyond the United States. To what extent can the other Gulf countries be helpful? Is there opportunity as part of the changing relationship between uh, you know the Saudis and uh, you know uh, Iran, is that a possibility? Is that a serious uh, uh, thing going on? And to what extent are people in Washington serious about having a better deal with Iran? Are they willing to put things on the table like more sanctions relief? If so, then they have at least they can ask. I mean, they have a an opportunity to try to bring uh, the issue of the Yemen and the, the Houthis into that. So I think the U.S. should be involved in that way. What's critical is the U.S. not you know, take this on as a military commitment. We need that, I think, is where we have to back away. It's not a question of promoting peace. If there's an opportunity, let's do so. And I think Thomas's ideas are quite worthwhile, but you know, getting a, a new uh, you know, Security Council resolution past the Russians and Chinese who feel uh, lied to Libya is not going to be easy. And the, you know, the Chinese have no reason to be helpful for us on much of anything at the moment. And uh, you know, the question of trying to get Hadi out of the way, it strikes me the people with the greatest leverage there are the Saudis and the uh, you know, Emiratis, it's not the United States. So let, let's be involved, but let's step back in the way we're involved. Thomas. Uh, I, I would actually agree with with um, a lot of what Doug uh, just said, if not if not most or all of it, uh, in the sense of of, of how the U.S. Uh, could or should uh, approach peace. I think uh, the, the the key issue is one of sequencing uh, to make sure that uh, unilateral moves on the part of the U.S. and or Saudi Arabia uh, are are not uh, poorly timed. In the sense that now we know. Uh, I mean, it was suspected before, but now we know that what the U.S. would see because of how it views the role of diplomacy and its own role as a confidence-building measure, uh, 
dropped unilaterally, the Houthis will simply pocket and, and move on uh, and, and, and exploit the opportunity. That's what happened with the uh, Stockholm Agreement on the West Coast. That's what happened with the FTO designation and de-designation uh, in the last few months. Um, and looking ahead, uh, I still see in, in debates in the US, in private conversations or, or, or publicly, uh, Americans, uh, officials or, or non-officials saying, well, let's do this uh, to signal our goodwill, uh, to try to kickstart a peace process. Um, in other circumstances, that may or may not work. In the current circumstances, that's not going to work um, because the Houthis will not uh, reciprocate with goodwill. They will pocket the concession uh, and gain an additional advantage in a world where they already have the advantage. So, yes, by all means, the U.S. should, and the way Doug framed it, I, I agree at, at, a, at a conceptual level, try to shift from war making to peacemaking, um, but keeping in mind that the sequencing of, of steps uh, in that process can easily go the wrong way. Summer. Yeah, absolutely, Thomas. I agree. Sequence matters. It matters for optics. It matters for um, the, you know, the realities on the ground. I personally would like to see a more direct relationship uh, between the United States and Yemen rather than viewing Yemen as just the backyard of Saudi Arabia. I think this is really, really important and may end up solving a lot of potential uh, issues in the near future if, uh, God forbid, they were to occur. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's never going to be about a war between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. It's always a, a coup, and that's it's been brilliantly transferred in in the way that the Houthis wanted, which is this is a Saudi Arabian issue, this is an American issue, this is external forces and mercenaries and this type of language, um, and uh, it, it'll always come back to a Yemeni issue. And so, uh, while we can utilize external efforts um, and, and countries to put pressure, but at the end of the day. It's the will of Yemenis that uh, that needs to be done. And then lastly, like I said, I think uh, one potential piece of optimism that I have is that while there is a lot of division, there is still a sense of unification in regards to being anti-Houthi or um, you know pro-government. It's, it's really just state institutions versus militias or coups, and, and there's no other way to, to frame it, honestly. So definitely the National Dialogue Conference and that piece of result, um, while it could be amended, is a great start to, to move forward. Well, I want to thank uh, all of our speakers for an engaging and informative discussion. Uh, thank you all for watching. And the video of this uh, event will be up on the Cato webpage uh, later today or tomorrow. Thank you all for joining.